Hey there, it's Nathalina, your host. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Asia is Not a Country. And I have something really special in store for this episode. My co-producer, Annie Lee, is joining us today. Welcome to the show, Annie. I'm so excited to have you co-host today's episode. And before we get into it, would you please do me the favor of introducing yourself to our listeners? Yes. Hi, Natalina. Thank you so much for letting me take over today. I'm also super excited about the interview we have lined up. So for everyone listening, my name is Annie. I'm a Han Chinese person from Nanjing, China. I was born and raised in China. I lived in the U.S., in Dubai, and have been living in Germany for the past seven years. Natalina and I met more than a year ago at a startup that we've both since left. Thankfully. And from the moment we spoke to each other, we just clicked. Despite both of us being ethnically Chinese, it was so interesting to see and hear how different and similar our experiences living in Europe have been. And even in the way that we both speak Mandarin, there are so many nuances and localizations with Natalina coming from Singapore that have made so many of our conversations a learning process for both of us. I think me more than you. (laughs) (laughs) When you told me about the podcast idea you had, I was so excited. And if our conversations were anything to go off on, I would love to broaden the spectrum of conversation that we have and bring in a variety of Asian stories and Asian experiences. That would be super interesting for everyone to hear. And I just want to add a disclaimer that nine out of 10 times, the different versions of Mandarin that Annie and I speak really boils down to my terrible grasp of the language. But speaking about how varied our experiences have been in spite of our shared ethnicity, I think it's time we get into today's episode. So Annie, for this episode, we interviewed a friend of yours. Would you be so kind as to introduce her to our listeners? I would love to. Jingsi is one of my closest friends. I met Jingsi when I was working in Dubai. Jingsi is incredibly smart and has completed a bachelor's and a master's degree in French. And she studied and lived in France. She speaks four languages. And she's also openly bisexual in China. She has been participating in a lot of community events and is an active member organizing community events for LGBTQAI plus communities in China. And a quick note before we dive into the interview, neither Annie nor I are part of the LGBTQIA plus community. And so we didn't want to take up too much space. So we'll let Jingsi, our wonderful interviewee, bring us through her experiences living in China. Hello. So my name is Jingsi, and I go by the English name of Orange. It's very easy to remember. I'm 29 years old, and I'm from Guangzhou, China. I work in the NGO sector um, for the past three years and a half. And currently, I work in um, youth social innovation, social enterprise as a project manager. Um, I'm bi uh, and also demisexual. I've been out since maybe 25 and uh, I've become quite active in the LGBTQ community in terms of online and offline. And I'm quite experienced in hosting um, big, medium, small events for LGBTQ community members. Some of them are quite celebrated. 
and I'm quite proud of what I do. Amazing. And maybe just to give us a bit more context, could you tell us about how it's like in general being part of the LGBT community in China and how has that changed maybe in the past few decades? I think this all uh, could could be connected to um, the way people perceive be, uh, the gayness. Like, I don't think it's very long since people changed the idea of viewing gay gay people as mental uh, as as mental people. Um, we we have what is called qu bing hua, which means uh, like the disease, something like that. Uh, like you don't call it, you don't refer something as a disease anymore. Um, uh, this this was still very um, late, like a little bit before the year two thousand, maybe year two, 1998, That was the year when people stopped calling it a, a disease, and then in the year between year 2000 and year 2010, you have to remember China entered World Trade Organization in 2001. So that's actually a glorious decade for China because China itself wants to be perceived as like this um, thriving country who that is uh, open, engaging and wants to change in terms of LGBTQ, uh, these people at the time, the hard thing for them is more, came more internally because um, internet was not so widely used at the time. People were like, oh shit, I'm gay, what do I do? And and actually one small story started from a gay man called A Chang. He and, and his boyfriend started this blog T- talking stories about them being gay and all and still being happy online and then that became a thing and caught uh, media attention and then that in year 2008 uh, A Chang started this organization called PFLAG China not really affiliated but it's a little bit related to uh, PFLAG they have a friendship if you will um, they sometimes send volunteers and they themselves will visit PFLAG in the Los Angeles in the United States. So you could say that some this is like their vision to become more like uh, what people would do in, in, in LA. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was really early on. And then I remember Chang telling me, because I'm actually, I've become a core a uh, volunteer in the past uh, few years, he once told me that in the best of times, they once organized events with like U.S. Embassy uh, during the Pride wow. Month in Guangzhou. That was a, that, that was I think a really big deal. But but the thing is, right now Chinese NGOs just can't be seen be related with embassies. It's even it's so hard to imagine yeah. nowadays. It that's like ten yeah. years later. So things got really hard after 2015. It's but but it didn't get hard over, uh, overnight. On one hand, you do see the public uh, policy getting just more and more fierce. On the other, 
people just you you get the young the generation um how should we say you you have you have the generation C coming along so for them coming out it's actually a piece of cake with all the knowledge in, on the internet and with their parents maybe born in the 80s in the 90s so uh, it's like in an in an, an inevitable trend for people to become naturally acceptable to LGBTQ community. So it's kind of ironic that you have these two trends going on parallel uh, with each other. So I think within the LGBTQ community, you see people struggling because um, think of it as intersections because LGBTQ is only one label and people, they are they're carrying so many labels at the same time. You have age, you have uh, profession, you have salary, you have uh, place of origin, etc. Um, and I think somewhere along the way, just I think with Chinese, we just try to succeed in society. So sometimes you make a certain choice that might be regarded as, you know, Mm, not so mm, well regarded. For example, uh, people that that were born maybe very early on, they were forced into uh, straight marriages. Like for imagine people in their fifties right now, it would be unimaginable for them to come up. So they were forced to go into straight marriages, and you might never hear of them coming out until you get you know, legalization of gay marriage. And then you have people in their, uh, that were born in 70s or 80s. In their youth, they led their gay lives and they, and still, they uh, when the time came, they had to uh, choose going into marriage. And that could lead to a social phenomenon called homosexual wife. So the thing with homosexual wife is you have a gay husband, who who is gay, obviously, and then as soon as he gets the wife knocked up and a kid coming along, he he shows his whole gayness. He stops being a good husband and just you you leave this poor wife suffering. So you have so this is like a phenomenon just that is not to be neglected. It's a real phenomenon. You have technically like eleven million homosexual wives. Could you give me more context as to what it is to live like um, to live in China as, as someone in, in the LGBT community? In a sense, like, is it legal? Is it illegal? Because where I'm from in Singapore, technically, technically being gay is illegal. We have a, a section in the penal code that basically says um, any sexual acts between two men can be uh, is criminal and you could be sentenced to up to two years in jail so i'm just wondering what that is in china is is there a, a law and whether there is or isn't does that affect how you live your your life yeah i think in china we are still a little bit better off than in singapore fortunately i think the good thing about us is intrinsically um in, in terms of traditional culture, we don't really have uh, anything cultural against being gay. Uh, in, our, in our history, it's quite common for people to practice gay activities. 
even among emperors uh, and you know men and women. In certain dynasties, it, it, it could also be seen as like a, a chic activity to do, like to have a boy of your own. Oh. No, it's true. Um, and uh, no, really. And Wei Jing Nan Bei Chao, you know? Any. I just don't know how to translate that. Um, um, but that's approximately. I can look up. It's a certain dynasty. But, uh, it's the dynasty be- before Tang Dynasty. That's the dynasty when people were quite into Taoism, I believe. Or that or Buddhism. Yeah. Either way, both religions, I think, are quite tolerant towards LGBT cultures, I think. They themselves are very zen, zen cult uh, religions, I think. Just to quickly add yeah. some context, uh, these northern and southern dynasties that Jing Si is speaking of uh, lasted between 420 AD and 589 AD. That's it. That's so cool. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Facts. Thank you, Internet. <laughs> yeah, but that's very uh, that's a long time ago. So if you if you use the word tradition, I think that I would think that's bullshit to discriminate against LGBTQ people. So we don't really have that background. As opposed to many Western cultures, they have Catholic religions, or in terms of maybe people in the Middle East, they have the Islamic religion. So we don't really have anything in the textbooks telling us not to do that. Yeah. That's good. Um, I was going to say, like, I think it's similar, because in Singapore, the penal code basically was introduced by the British when we were colonized by them. Uh, so before, there was nothing I like see. that, right? Um, and we've just kept it. We, right? Yeah, we've kept right? it. Yeah, yeah. So people could be so easily influenced. So for example, only today, this afternoon, I told people that I'm a LGBTQ member and... That was all right. Not, like nobody came after me. I just come out so often that I'm used to it. I kind of consider it as my obligation, if you even, to kind of like accidentally, hi, I'm bi, though, by the way. Or no. I don't need to tell them I'm bi. I just tell them, oh, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community or I'm wearing this, is this rainbow shirt yeah. or whatever. Um, and this doesn't really bring me any actual harm. And Sometimes even I gain a, a small applause from young people who think, oh, well, this person seems quite modern and stuff. And so brave. Wow. So, yeah, no, no physical act harm comes to this. However, the thing that is hard for people like us is when we come out to our parents, sometimes, of course, they would out of tradition think oh this is absurd but actually more parents they worry more about the reality such as how are you going to have kids how if you're not going to get married how are you going to find a partner how are you going to afford a house how when you go old how how are you going to die so it's more of it's not to do with shame right so there's nothing to do with like you know, in the Catholic, Christian, Muslim sense, like you're not bringing shame to the family. It's more gen- like general, like genuine um, concern about what's going to happen to my child when I'm not there, and when they're older, will they have children to take care of me? Yeah. Very interesting. And maybe now that we're talking about 
families um, would love to start hearing a bit more about your own personal story. Um, when did you realize you were bi? So uh, uh, I actually, I think quite early on, I, I, I knew that I could be attracted to girls. I think the earliest memory maybe came from before even I was 10, before 10. I just, I was playing along with other girls and then I caught an eye of a dyke girl, if you will, a girl that looked, that maybe not even dyke, like a girl that, that was more that, uh, you know, Zhongxing, uh, unisex, that had a more, that had a unisex look. Androgynous. Huh? Yes, that word. And then I caught her eyes and then we saw eye to eye and then for that brief moment, I felt something. I was pretty sure she felt something too because we smiled a little bit at each other. But that was it. I got older and of course, um, people started, you know, having small ro romantic relationships after like 13 or something. For example, at 16, uh, I actually developed a very strong crush towards my best friend at the time. Yeah, so I wrote an article about it a few years ago about how she would come to sleep at my dorm because she, she wasn't, I wasn't, you know, boarding and she wasn't. So she had to come over at my bed and I would count her eyelashes as she was sleeping. That sounds rather creepy and oh, sweet. I, I think my heart just I broke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So cute. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would do that. I would also, you know, comfort her when she was, when she was confiding me in how a jerk, in what a jerk her boyfriend at the time was. It turns out it, it he actually was because uh, a few years later he ca she called him cheating and then things got pretty serious when one day we were out in an, an amusement park and I looked at her and I said hey I want to kiss you and then actually at the time my, my boyfriend and her boyfriend were actually literally uh, standing next to us the next day, she she rang up and told and told me, "Hey, I can't be friends with you anymore." I said, "Why?" He she said, "Oh, but my friend, my boyfriend asked me to." Hmm. Yeah. So that that was the end of it, and I was so sad. She kind of kept a real distance with me until maybe like uh, a year later when I I had a really high score in a mock exam. That hurt. <laughs> <laughs> she came to me and she and she invited me for lunch. I was all ippity up, and then she asked me all of a sudden, "Hey, so I I I saw you doing really good at the uh at the, the, the last exam. How did you do it?" <laughs> she wanted your like, ex was... exam study tips. Like <laughs> such a Chinese problem. I was to gonna have. say. <laughs> I know. It's like, oh, I haven't talked to someone in like ages, but I, but so I want to know how to get the top score. Let me reach out to her and like, you know, try and reconnect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nothing will stop yeah, a Chinese yeah. person yeah. who wants to score really high in an exam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, then I'd also love to hear a bit more about your coming out story to your family and people around you. How, how did you come out to your family and to others? Oh, yeah. So coming out, 
uh, to my parents and to others was not hard for me at all, quite contrary to other people's examples, really. Um, I think the hardest part for me was to come out to myself because uh, after the mm, the sad high school story, I kind of hit that part of me for quite some years. In my university years, I basically only hung out with guys in, romantically and sexually, you know, because they, they kept coming at you. So that was the easier way out. The next strike came when I was 25. The, Annie knew the part. <laughs> I have to tell it again. <laughs> to our lovely audience, yes. It. Yes. Yeah, so... Um, so that was the same year when I met Annie. We were in a professional program in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. And uh, I, for all reasons, somehow developed very strong feelings towards someone who was actually my senior or someone who was uh, a lot older than me and worse still, who had professional relations with me. It was basically impossible and at the same time, it was really hard for me to hold my feelings back. I just, uh, at first I kind of hit it, but then I started sharing it with my friends. And then those feelings just kept growing and growing. And at the end of the program, when our professional relationship ended, I finally got the chance to kind of uh, travel to her country and to tell her what's what was in my mind. It was a very, very sweet and sweet story and so i wrote what happened was i wrote a store uh, uh, a letter of a thousand words and i drew her a sunflower to kind of i want to draw you a sunflower but i cannot i don't want to buy a sunflower to avoid making a scene she was really shocked at uh, in my confession which for, for uh, i think this is my mistake uh, or my problem because ever since her i think every person i i confessed to always told me i didn't see this coming <laughs> no even yesterday even yesterday i was i was giving a confession to a girl it this wasn't serious that serious but still i have genuine feelings for her we also have work relations i think this is due to the my other side because I'm demisexual. In a, in other words, I cannot really develop feelings or develop sexual interest unless I feel emotionally connected to this person. So being bi and being demisexual, that's really hard. Um, so yeah, the woman at the time, she was very shocked to hear. But since giving uh, coming out to me was the hardest part, and since she... Um, she said no to me so gently and stuff. I decided, yes, it shouldn't be a problem at all for me to come out to my parents because, uh, A, my parents, uh, are divorced and B, I'm already a grown adult and C, I was starting to make my own salary and stuff. So it's, there's no way they could kick me out or anything. Um, and so basically what I did was I would simply inform them. Hi, I'm bi. <laughs> and then, yes, it took a really long time for my mom to accept. I don't think she accepted it still, but now she just she's just like, you know, every now and then you can consider finding a boyfriend. But with my with my father, 
since I I'm quite distant to him. Uh, when I came out to him, he did seriously ask me two questions. One was, why can you not choose the other side of being bi? Like, why can you not choose being straight? And I told him, I just can't. That's how bi works. And the other question was, if you are bi, why the hell do you have to be so vocal about it? And to that, I responded, I felt it was my duty to kind of speak for my community members and kind of myself. I had that for myself for so many years that I, I felt like I just didn't want to hide that any longer. So yeah, that's my coming out story. Was there a process or did you, did you also have to explain to your parents what it meant to be bisexual? Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. I think it's one thing to tell them you're bi. It's definitely another thing for them to process it. I think it's very similar to grief. With grief, first stage is denial, such as the case with my mom. When I show her the Rainbow Cruise in year 2019, um, that was already like six months after my coming out, or definitely over half a year. And then I brought her to this gay cruise where there was there were 1,000 people out of 2,000 uh, passengers on the cruise. And then you have maybe 700 gay people, 200 lesbians or women, and then 100-something parents who are parents to LGBTQ community members. So imagine how gay it is at being <laughs> on the boat and seeing people coming around. They weren't snogging. They weren't like making out in public like that. But it was just very... It was just very, how you say, very utopian for mm-hmm. people like us to see, oh my God, there are gay people everywhere. Yeah, so it was quite a scene for us. And then it come, imagine my mom on the boat and, and then every now and then she would be like, I saw this guy and this girl, a tech, a ba- it, it was very obvious they were like one of them was gay, the other was a lesbian, and they and she said, "Hmm, I think they she, they might be a couple," or she was the uh, was see a lesbian woman who happened to be a little bit large, and she would comment, huh, uh, "That's why because she she's too fat, she can't find any boyfriends. That's why she chose to be gay." That's not very PC. Mm-hmm. You like, you know, she will make sarcastic comments like that. So that clearly shows the denial state she was in. I think right now she's in this bargaining stage. Yeah. What does that mean exactly? So every now and then she she will ask, oh, uh, what happens if you get old? Why can't you just find someone, you know, bargaining? Denial, anger. I don't think my mom was ever angry, though. Yeah. But how does that make it make you feel with with her? She's still kind of coming around to the idea, still trying to see if like we can push you to the more like men interested side of being bi. Like, um, has that affected your relationship? How you feel about yourself? Yeah. So interestingly, the year I came out to her, I actually had a boyfriend. <laughs> I had this one night stand with this guy, and then that led to. Uh, casual sex, casual dating, and then six months later, I thought we might as well have 
give this relationship a name and then call it exclusive. And that's how he became my boyfriend. He's not like the best uh, ideal of a boyfriend, but at the time, um, we kind of got along pretty well, like roommates. So I enjoyed my first time actually living with someone. That's kind of a, an adult experience to, to have. So I don't regret it. It's just like a year later, um, I watched a movie called The Half of It. It's actually about a girl in her teenage years who tries to help a, a boy to go after another girl. Unfortunately, uh, that's also the same girl she's um, interested in. It's very cliche, but it works. And then after watching the film, I was crying so hard, very hard. My then boyfriend was looking at me, very amazed. She, he was like, what the hell? And I was like, you don't get it, do you? Then that's how I, I came to this conclusion. Okay, that wasn't love between us and we had to, kept, we had to call it quits. No but matter did he how know that you were bi? Oh, he does. He did. He definitely okay. knew. The, 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 like the second we hooked up, I let him know. I'm by, mm. and then he he's also a photographer. So my first major LGBTQ event, the uh, the the event I hosted, I actually you know hired him for free to kind of help us make videos and shit and take photo photos. I can show you the video; it's online. <laughs> yes, it's very well made because I made him. You know, I I, I, I <laughs> you worked him. him. You worked him good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nice. Um, I, I have a question about like uh, being bisexual and then dating and only dating men in in China. When you tell them that mm-hmm. you're you're bi, how do they feel about it? Like, what is their oh? Response? I think it's very typical. Uh, with my ex boyfriend, he was like, "That's cool." Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and and also they will often add, as long as you're not dating dudes, you know, another dude. So I think this has to do with gender inequality men or people will often assume that only penis penetration is legit uh intercourse if you're only doing it with a girl that's called three-way that's also another misconception with bi girls the first time i went on tinder or the earlier days when i was still on tinder i i i told people i was bi and usually the immediate uh, response I would get was, would you care to do like a, a 3P something? But that's actually very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my impression is also that straight people in China seem to perceive bisexual as that the person is polyamorous. Um, so mm-hmm. I had a really good friend in college here in Germany who was bisexual. And when I was just first speaking to my parents about him, they were like, oh, does that mean he would date two people at the same time? <laughs> Which is a really yeah. strange perception, but it seems like a lot of Chinese people or maybe like straight men tend to perceive bisexuality this way. Yeah. I have another question for you. You also described yourself as very outspoken about your identity in general. What does that mean for you? Did it have an impact on your personal and professional life? Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a very important question because I think 
most people, for most people, that's actually the part they're most concerned about how this will affect their career. Actually, it is true that in my first job,、uh, coming out did affect me. So I was hosting my first, the first LGBTQ event ever, and after that, I was very happy about it, and I posted that on WeChat. And then my supervisor、uh, at the time told me not to. She actually came to me and said,、uh, "I heard about this about you recently. Good for you, but、um, have you ever considered maybe not to?" You know, being out there and stuff. I thought about it, and she actually advised me to delete the post, which I didn't. And then, not long after, I got、uh, fired. But also, that that wasn't the only reason. I I I didn't like the 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 atmosphere with the workplace either. So, I think that would maybe,、yeah. maybe just to contextualize it. So if. If I were to go on WeChat and I just put your name in, would I be able to see all this post that you've you shared? Like, is that how、oh, yeah, it works?、Yeah. I've never been on WeChat. I told、yeah, Annie WeChat so, terrifies me. The idea of it. Well,、uh, WeChat it really WeChat is like this combination of ah,、oh, it's different. It's just different. <laughs> not Facebook. It's, it's like Google it's, it's, and Facebook yeah, and like texting all together,、uh, yeah, right? It's, yeah, it's a combination of、uh, of Instagram and Facebook because, in one sense, it's intimate and only only your friends will get to see your、uh, posts.、Um, so that's not like high, not、uh, not like Instagram. Anyone can see your fake photos on Instagram、um, with. Facebook is more like with family, friends, or any social relations you might have.、Um, but you usually share. You tend to share only intimate or private stuff, or like, oh, I graduated. Not like, oh, I, I, I got. You know,、uh, here is some very important business commercial that you must watch. In China, it's. So overused that you can literally post anything on WeChat. So, and、uh, so people, they can post anything. They can post intimate stuff. They can post public stuff. They can set up subdivision groups, whatever. They use it, however. But anyways, in China, if you're Chinese, basically all your social connections are through WeChat. So But, your supervisor's fear would be that. Someone、yeah. would go、so、on there, of、like、see your name. Are, it's kind of like they're expecting to see my LinkedIn, and then they saw my Instagram drunk, something like that.、Mm, okay, right. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing with WeChat. So the professional way to do it would be to kind of categorize the, those work people into a certain group that they could only see your glorious photos. But I didn't. Hmm. So to. Separate like the permissions, right? Yeah, yeah. So that only some people can see the yeah, yeah, more sort yeah. of personal yeah, aspects. Yeah. Yeah. But that's you know、uh, that's increasingly hard because it, it's like, do you have to do it every time you post a post? That's so annoying. And also the other thing with not coming out is once you decide to put on a you know a fake face, you kind of have to put it on everywhere. So that's annoying. And maybe one more question, based on your work and casual conversations with people in the community, 
what are some of the most pressing issues that Chinese LGBT people are most concerned about? And social survival, I guess, or political justice. I want to talk about transgender people since we never really talked about it in this podcast yet. Um, the thing with transgender people is they're not the majority of the LGBTQ community. And actually through my volunteering experience and also personal encounters, I managed to actually meet and befriended some of these transgender people. And actually, I, I came to realize they have their own very unique requirements or demands. They have they have big issues with uh, uh, with toilets. I, I know most people might hear about it from the case of J.K. Rowling. We uh, we also talked about this uh, here in China. So the thing with transgender people is, since they are technically misgender, um, it's a very difficult thing for them to find the proper toilet. Let's imagine your um, MTF meaning male to female, uh, it's usually the hot topic here. You identify yourself as a female, but maybe uh, physically or maybe in terms of exterior experience, uh, exterior, ex uh, you know, appearance, you kind of look like a dude or whatever. And, uh, you could have a very hard time in this world finding a toilet and to survive. You cannot really go to a men's bathroom because you will feel all weird. Um, but if you go to a lady's bathroom, women will feel weird. And you will also feel kind of weird, even though that might be the place you want to go. So actually, the best ideal solution would be uh, the third gender bathroom or non-gender bathroom where you, I, you know, assign just a bathroom that has no gender. This bathroom can be used for both family members, you know, a mom taking his her son, a father taking his daughter, uh, someone taking a, an elder parent, or a transgender person who just simply doesn't want to be seen. I think that's actually the most ideal. I think that's also a, com uh, a going process. Uh, with uh, in the first tier cities, more and more you see uh, third gender bathrooms or family toilets every everywhere. Um, but um, in terms of um, conceptions, I think I would say it's safe to say most Chinese people have no idea with um, have no idea of what the transgender people are feeling, and they of most certainly usually would uh, would think, oh, if you have not yet completed a certain surgery, let's say um, very brutally, like remove your penis or something, uh, you cannot be considered as a real woman, something like that. So words could get really harsh at times and imagine feelings hurt from both sides. I just kind of hope that more people could try to meet real transgender people, even though it's hard. They're also quite rare. 
they they want they kind of hide it amongst themselves because life is hard yeah yeah it's crazy to hear that because we do have a very influential transgender and m to f male to female transgender icon in china jingxing yeah. so jingxing i think used to be a professional dancer okay. Uh, but then became a very popular talk show host. Um, her shows, I think, were probably some of the most watched TV shows in the entirety of China. So she's absolutely a household name. Um, but perhaps it's because she's fully completed her trans transformation, I'm assuming, um, that she physically completely appears female and she dresses in very feminine ways. She always wears beautiful qipaos to her talk, talk shows that maybe people have fully accepted that she is a woman and she's always been a woman. Um, but it also makes me feel really sad that despite having such a strong and vocal icon, we generally don't have enough awareness for the transgender community in China. I don't think Jinxing is a very good example of transgender people in China because... I know. I don't. I sorry to kind of, you know, to no. It's fine. Speak against you. It's, uh, Jingxing with Jingxing. It's like, of course she's successful and stuff. Um, I think one thing you should notice is, I think she kind of uh overcompensated it by, uh, trying to put this very uh the social image of very super feminine. Uh, wearing chipa all the time, and even even though she doesn't have kids, I think she went on her ho on her talk show. She always when she talks with uh, with other female guests, she will always say things like, "Oh, uh, how are you working on your marriage? Are you finding someone? Are you going to get married? Are you going to have kids? Blah blah blah." So they're very uh, in in terms of social gender, they're very feminine and they're very. Traditional, and she she confines to this social gender roles very much. I actually have a question about the the trans community, and maybe also in comparison to, for example, the gay community is is it is it more difficult being being trans because Definitely. you are right, and, and I wonder how they deal with it in terms of how they being seen in society i think if you're a gay man you could dress a certain way uh you know you could dress up the masculinity right yep yep uh if in, if you're male and you dress up the masculinity yep. you can kind of pass and you hide yep. you hide your, your sexuality and i i really wonder how it is in um in china for for the trans community yeah, yeah. is there violence is there a fear of violence and threat like there is in the u.s um Uh -huh. Does that exist in China? Okay. Uh, yeah. So you, I think you're very right about uh, gay people having it easier than transgender people because they can choose to hide their gay side, their gayness at work. Uh, when I first met a transgender man, he told me there's this term called getting onshore with transgender people. Though getting onshore means Actually, their biggest dream is to live invisibly, is to live like any other person who gets unspotted. Like he did go to Thailand and do this hormone treatment. 
he removed his breath and then um he told him he told me that yeah the biggest dream is to get on shore and um to you know you have like not all transgender people have had surgeries it takes money it takes consent from your parents in china you actually have to have consent from your parents to do the surgery i think yeah that's why people would go abroad and is there an age limit like do you mean uh, yeah I, I, I think there's an age limit but i'm not sure but definitely i think you need the consent from your parents and that's where people get stuck how can you imagine your parents being willing to let you change your gender let i mean let alone understand you i mean yeah so even as an adult in china you would still need your parents consent i to receive the surgery so i think i have to look into it or have to ask someone but yeah generally speaking i think so so that's hard and yeah even and and actually it's hard for them in terms of um college certificates and diploma what you you actually have um your assigned gender written there how can you even after your surgery how can you explain to someone your something that you want you know that's the, it, it, so that's life is hard all the way for them every now and then mm. i once uh, i remember so i remember once there's this very pretty very physically attractive girl transgender woman uh she's very tall uh she passes incredibly uh, in terms of physical uh, physical appearance at the same time she was very insecure um when when we hang out she wouldn't she wouldn't speak uh, to other people like she will only speak to us like privately because unfortunately she has a very low voice that sounds like a dude so it's kind of like whenever she starts speaking that will give her away technically you could do that by through some practicing or you can have some surgery in korea you know but still it takes time and stuff and you know transgender women they still have to struggle for work how could they work so i think uh, the good thing about transgender people in china is i think they encounter much less physical violence i think it's a lot less like in the united states where uh, in the in the series post you could actually see physical violence you know you see people that look like trans people you just hit them I don't think that happens very much in China. We are very much a peaceful country. Thank God. So, but still, um, yeah. The emotional injury is still there. Chatting to Jingsi, I feel so much more informed about what's happening at home in my own country. I'm impressed by these people who are constantly trying to use their own voices to speak up and support each other so courageously in a society that is always silencing them. I recently went home for the first time in almost three years, and very randomly at this gas station, I saw the first unisex bathroom that I've ever seen in China. The bathroom had a sign that explained the purpose of the bathroom. It was intended to 
help family members support each other and take care of each other who are of a different gender. So they gave examples. Daughters could take care of their grandfathers or mothers could take care of their sons. But I also hope that this could be one of the many steps to come that would improve the lives of trans folks and other members of the LGBTQIA plus community in China as well. Yeah, I think that's really cool that you saw a unisex bathroom in, in China and at a gas station of all places. I also realized throughout the conversation with Tsingsi that I had these preconceived notions and ideas of what being in the community was going to be, or at least the community in China, because I was basing most of my preconceived notions on secondhand knowledge of the experiences of my friends in Singapore. And the stories that my friends usually share have been tied to shame, religious beliefs, the idea of carrying on the family name, especially for men. So I found it really heartening to hear that the concerns of the parents in China, of these LGBTQIA plus community, really comes from a genuine place of worry about who and whether their children will be looked after in their old age. It's, it's really loving and sweet. Thank you for listening to Asia's Not a Country. Make sure to follow the show wherever you listen. Leave a review because that really helps us. You can also follow us on Instagram at asiasnotacountry.podcast. Share this with your friends, colleagues, and hey, maybe even in your family WhatsApp group. This episode is hosted and produced by me, Nathalina Pereira. My co-producers are Jasmine Bayomi and Ines Blasius. This episode was edited by Ines Blasius. Mixing and sound design by Dominic Etchley. Music Epidemic Sound.